This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Amanda Machaga driving the show with Jualani Tulo with Sani Matebula and Neto Chamane. Top stories on Africa Digest, Senegal's ruling party claims a landslide victory in the West African nation's legislative elections. DRC president has less than five months to save his 17-year regime from what analysts call a disastrous ending. In economics, BP's second quarter profit dips but beats focus after an exploration write-off in Angola. And in sports, South Africa's Premier Soccer League appoints a senior counsel to investigate the loss of life that occurred at FNB Stadium. But first, the news with Shalani. Thank you, Amanda. Good afternoon. Senegal President Macky Sall's ruling coalition is set to retain a commanding majority in parliament after a weekend election. Sall's Beno Bokiakar coalition has reportedly won 43 of the 45 electoral districts, even though official results have not been announced. A win for Sall's coalition will boost his prospects for re-election in 2019. Abubakar Jalo is a journalist based in Senegal. For now, the uh, ruling party, which is headed by President Macky Sall, they are getting between 105 to 110 seats. That is the Benno Bokiakar, which is uh, headed by President Macky Sall. Um, the second one, which is headed by the mayor of Dakar, who is in prison, Khalifa Sall, uh, his party is having right now 20 seats. Uh, that is the second one. The third one, which is the party of the former president of Ablaiwad is having right now 16 seats for now. Members of Kenya's civil society have accused state agencies in the country of masterminding the murder of a senior electoral commission official whose remains were found in a mortuary on Monday, three days after his disappearance. The activists held protests in Nairobi on Tuesday to demand speedy investigations into the murder of Chris Msando, Kenya's Independent Elections and Boundaries Commission Information, Communications and Technology boss. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has condemned the killing and urged for calm. Kenya is due to hold elections next week. These protesters express their views. Now we hope the government of Kenya will accept the offers uh, that will make the investigation credible of external investigative forces. We don't know, but it's hard for any Kenyan not to read into this. Regardless of the motivations of those who did it, um, the net result has been the same. Uh, you, you could feel the shock uh, across the country uh, yesterday. Uh, because of the gruesomeness of the murder and also how critical this particular individual was in the management of our election process. South Sudan activists are pushing for the inclusion of rebel leader Rick Machai in the official process of reviving the peace agreement he signed with President Salva Kiir more than two years ago. The revival process was initiated last week by IGAD, the East African Regional Trade Bloc, Executive Director of South Sudan Network and Democracy and Elections, Rajab Mohandisi, highlights the challenges of this problem of this process. 
it will be very challenging if the peace agreement that is going to be revitalized does not adequately capture the challenges that we have and does not adequately include all the parties to the conflict. If half of the parties are included, others are not, there is likelihood that those who may not be involved will still uh, may not have other options but have violence as an option to find their ways to the political process. There are clear challenges to the implementation. There are clear causes for which South Sudan is in, in, in crisis. And uh, we would love to see uh, IGAD and its Council of Ministers coming out very clearly to outline the, the challenges. Police officials say a shooting at a regional court in the Russian capital Moscow has left at least three people dead. State agency TASS says the incident happened at a hearing of a criminal gang and started when some of the defendants tried to take firearms from security officers. Two other criminals and two officers were wounded. The building has reportedly been evacuated. And finally, the South African Democratic uh, Demographic rather, and Health Survey says only 32% of infants younger than six months are exclusively breastfed in the country. The world commemorates World Breastfeeding Week from today. Chantal Witten of the Northwest University says the country is still far behind uh, the United Nations target of 50%. I think that as South Africans, we should hang our heads in shame because we are one of the countries with the lowest breastfeeding rates and we should do more collectively. Each of us are connected to a family. So if we can support our family members, support our colleagues, we can have a better and a bigger breastfeeding society. And that's what we would like. Our Minister Mutsaledi put out the challenge and said, we are a breastfeeding country. It takes people to make a breastfeeding country. And we're calling on moms to be supported by their families and their colleagues. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. Senegal's ruling party has claimed a landslide victory in the West African nation's legislative elections, propping President Merkel Sall's prospects for re-election in 2019. Sall's Beno-Obok-Yaka coalition claims that it has won 42 of the 45 electoral regions. Sall's main threat to increasing his power in parliament was posed by former President Abdullah Wad, who was aiming to drum up support for his own list of candidates and his son, Karim, who is not on the ballot but has ambitions for the presidency. Abu Bakr Jalo is a journalist in Senegal and he reports. For now, the uh, ruling party, which is headed by President Macky Sall, they are getting between 105 to 110 seats. That is the Benabokiakar, which is uh, headed by President Macky Sall. Um, the second one, which is headed by the mayor of Dakar, who is in prison, Khalifa Sall. Uh, his party is having right now 20 seats. Uh, that is the second one. The third one, which is the party of the former president of Ablaiwad is having right now 16 seats for now. Now, who won the capital city of Dakar, Abu Bakr? Has it been won by the mayor, Khalifa Sal's coalition? Well, we are getting mixed results from Dakar. Uh, nobody knows yet who won. Some people are saying that uh, 
uh, the party of Makisal, Bema Bokuyakar, they are heading, they are leading by almost 2,000 votes. Uh, some people are saying that the mayor is heading, you know, with uh, 20,000 uh, 20, uh, 20, votes. Uh, we don't know yet, but obviously it will be between uh, Makisal and the mayor of, of Dakar. As you know, Dakar, they have uh, seven seats for Dakar. Whoever gets the majority will get all the seven seats, which is uh, given to Dakar. Now, the vote to elect a new parliament was seen as a test run for President Mike Sall ahead of a 2019 presidential election. And of course, this follows a campaign marred by violence. Is this a test, perhaps, of what we can expect from the 2019 election in terms of President Mike Sall's chances at those polls? What does this landslide win mean for President Mike Sall? Well, I think this is this is the very good news for President Makisal. As you remember, as you say, ahead of the election, uh, many people we are seeing this is this is the referendum on Makisal, you know, to test you know his 2019 uh, chances of winning the presidential elections, you know, and how he will try to implement all the policies you know he he, he promised during during the the, the the election so if you know if the result is as it is right now you know he he has won lands he has got a landslide uh, victory so he could implement all his policies without any you know without any hindrance from the opposition and if he is able to do all those uh, implement all those policies he has a big chance of, you know, winning the 2019 election, you know, because as you know, there's a lot of projects going on, like the, the new airport, you know, and different, different projects, you know, which is he promised during the campaign, which he says, you know, he, he was going to implement. So now he will not have any problem of implementing all those policies. And if he implement all those policies, which is very popular among the, 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 the population, you know, his chances is very strong in 2019. What has been the reaction of a former president Abdullah Wad, who was one of the leading contenders in this election. Has he said anything about uh, President Mekisal's reported victory? Well, since yesterday, uh, we haven't had yet from the former president Abdullah Wad. You know, as uh, you know, yesterday he said that you know this is you know Mekisal have sabotaged you know, his party, all his strongholds, you know, we are, you know, Makisal didn't have any chance of winning like Dakar, like in Tuba, you know, in many areas which, you know, Makisal didn't have any chance of winning. He sabotaged, you know, he didn't, uh, the ballot box was late, you know, or, you know, he said a lot of, you know, a lot of things, Makisal sabotaged the, the election, you know, just, just to get a majority. But since yesterday, you know, we haven't had anything from him for now. That's Abubakar Jalo, assistant editor at the African Press Agency on the line from Dakar, Senegal, talking to Kumbero Munzerere. President Joseph Kabila of the Democratic Republic of Congo has just less than five months to save his 17-year regime from what analysts call a disastrous ending. According to the 31st December 2016 all-inclusive political agreement, Kabila should organize elections and hand over power. The agreement sets clear terms for Kabila's exit. His second presidential term ended on 19 December 2016. The agreement allowed him an extension of one year on condition that he would not 
neither seek a third term nor attempt to amend the constitution to remain in power beyond December 2017. Now to discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Nelson Alusala, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Yeah, good evening and thank you for inviting me. You have penned an article where you argue that President Kabila's bid to remain in power is bad for the DRC. Why is that? I think uh, it is bad for three uh, reasons. One is that uh, when uh, President Kabila agreed with the uh, National Episcopal Conference of Churches in Congo uh, on the 31st of December last year, when they, during the negotiations to bring peace to, to what was happening at the time, he agreed that he would step down by the end of 2017. Remember, at that time, uh, in 2016, his mandate expired on the 19th of December. And therefore, to save the situation, the negotiators uh, agreed that they would give him a one-year duration in which he would prepare for an election, and therefore he would step down as one of the conditions. The second condition was that he would uh, organize elections within that time and hand power to the incoming uh, uh, regime. And the third was that he would not uh, in any way interfere with the constitutional, or, I mean, constitutional arrangements of the country by amending the constitution so as to stay in power perpetually. But what we've seen lately is uh, a president who is using delay tactics. He has, up to this time, not put in place any mechanism to show the world, or even the Congolese, that he's interested in organizing elections by the end of this year. And that is really worrying, not only to the Congolese, but uh, to all the observers uh, uh, as a whole. The country's National Elections Commissioner stated recently that uh, presidential elections would probably not take place this year uh, because of the conflict in the Kasai region and the fact that there's no comprehensive electoral register. Now, in your view, is the DRC ready for elections? Uh, if you recall uh, the fact that uh, the regime of Kabila was to, to his, his second term was to have expired last year, and uh, knowing very well that uh, he knew uh, that his term was coming to an end and he did not prepare uh, any, in any way to, to, to organize an election. That simply means that uh, the conflict in the Kasai is, would just be one of the things to, to use as a delaying tactic because if really the Kasai conflict was uh, a reason to base a delay of elections on, we would have seen before the Kasai issues uh, broke up, we would have seen uh, a president interested in uh, putting in place mechanisms, for example, mm. the voter registration going on and other aspects, but we did not see that. So the Kasai conflict, though it's a sad thing, it's happening, it would uh, augment to the, uh, the rest of the country's conflict when it comes to now the delaying of the elections. There would be a reason for a nationwide uh, uprising perhaps by the, the popular majority against the regime, like what happened in, uh, in Burkina Faso with the President Blaise Compaore. Perhaps not exactly that, but the discontent will be widespread. So would you say that would be the implications uh, should uh, then uh, President Kabila not hold elections within the agreed timelines? Definitely will, uh, it will not be conducive once there is a, a popular majority coming up to agitate for immediate elections, the atmosphere will no longer be conducive 
And therefore, that's why we talk of the, the next five months are a turning point in his life, in his life as a president, to go down with a, a legacy of a president who transformed the Congo and the first president ever to hunt power over democratically. He stands that chance, and we see it being wasted every moment, every single day. In the next five months, it is actually a momentous task if at all he manages to organize a sensible election because he has eaten deep into the time, and even if he started now frantically, uh, still the time is very limited, but we really pray hard that he does something to show commitment and that he puts Congo on the right track. All right, thank you so much, Nelson, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, bye. That was Nelson Alusala, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Mlopov Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África A voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park Cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul Sochitika Mu África Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 17 minutes after 5 p.m. Central African time. The man in charge of Kenya's computerized voting system has been found dead just days before the 8 August elections. Chris Msando, an electoral commission IT manager, had gone missing on Friday. Sando was in charge of the computer system for Monday's election, which had been voted as key to eliminate vote rigging. Tension is high as the presidential election is expected to be a close race between incumbent Uhuru Kenyatta and long-term opponent Raila Odinga. Abdullahi Halaki is Amnesty International's Kenya researcher. It is very difficult to say who killed him because we don't have all the necessary details um, and of course mind you we are also a human rights organization rather than a police but the motive from everything that we've seen so far leads to somebody who is interested in you know disrupting the free fair legitimate election so in many ways our concern here right now is as you rightly put at the top is that this man was killed his body was found a week to the election, the day on which this electronic voting system was supposed to be tested. So even if we don't have any information, from there we could infer that somebody who is interested in disrupting the elections, who probably is not interested in free, fair and credible election, must have a hand in this. Now, Wafula Che Bukati, that's the chair of the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, has demanded um, now after the death of Chris Sandu that the government provides security for all of his staff. Now, do you think this is necessary? It is necessary 
Although my only concern right there again is it's come a bit late, you know. Um, we shouldn't be one week before the elections sitting here and saying, why was Chris killed? Chris was given a job. Chris did his job very well until now. This casts a very, you know, ominous shadow over the election. That has already been, you know, foreshadowed by the death of the cabinet secretary who is in charge of the security a month ago. And now this one. And these are two critical institutions in the delivery of free, fair and peaceful elections. But now, do you think the, the murder of Christmas Sandu, could it be an indication that the elections could descend into violence? It's hard to say, but if the government doesn't move with speed, give accurate and credible information about those who are involved in his murder, it might not portend well for the elections. It's credibility and potentially people saying, look, this election has already been interfered with. And the Kenyan government, of course, has promised to investigate the murder of, of, of Msando urgently uh, with the United States and, and, and Britain having offered assistance, I understand, into the investigation. Do you think this can allay fears that the election will descend into chaos and violence? You've done well. But if not, it will be material. That's Abdullahi Halaki, Amnesty International's Kenya researcher on the line from Nairobi, speaking to Jose Khotingage. The United States of America has expressed concern over what it says is Nigeria's inability to secure the areas it captured from Boko Haram in the fight against insurgency, considering that Abuja has not been able to rebuild the civilian structures which were destroyed in the course of the fight. The report has been criticized by the Nigeria Army, which says claims by the State's Department are a figment of its own imagination and biases. Channel Africa's correspondent Collins Atohe reports from Lagos. The 2016 report says despite the level of progress which Nigeria has recorded in the fight against the terror group, it has noted a disturbing trend in the fact that Nigeria has not been able to hold securely to the areas which it captured from Boko Haram. The report which was submitted to the America's Congress under the title 22 of its code noted that Nigeria's progress report is a duplication of efforts which was carried over from the successes recorded in the 2016 fighting season. It recalls that Nigeria has not been able to rebuild the civilian infrastructures which were destroyed by Boko Haram, neither has there been a distinct program to adequately take care of the internally displaced people in the northeast. But the Director of Defense Information, General Paul Eneche, says the report is biased and cannot be relied on considering the fact that the army has gone beyond the line drawn by the same America since the beginning of the insurgency. This is not the first time I'm hearing from it. The same people say we cannot contain Boko Haram. The same thing that I'm not even supposed to say join issues here with, with, with such a report. It's an opinion of the United States military. It is not real. What is it an issue of the deliberate operation they are talking about? No. <laughs> I'm a military man. I fought there and I know what I'm talking about. This is not a deliberate operation. The one they did with impunity before 2015. Is that what they are doing now? What is ambush? You conceal yourself. You pass through people. You hide your weapons. You waylay them. The nature of these things happening now are information bound strongly. And I still want to state that there are informants. There are still fifth columnists. There are still collaborators who are collaborating. In like manner, 
A national security analyst, Wale Olumide, says the job of rebuilding the damaged civilian infrastructures caused by the insurgents is not that of the military. Basically, if you read through the report properly, my first uh, appreciation there is that it was agreed that gains have been made as the first time because it's going to be very uh, tough if they say nothing has been achieved. But it's not a very objective report. And I'll say this because when you say that the IDPs are returning back and are being sent back and that we are sending them to have not been totally rebuilt and all that, it's not the responsibility of the military. The spate of recent attack by Boko Haram generated some political stress that the acting president, Yemi Osibajo, ordered the redeployment of the military hierarchy to the troubled northeast to ensure consolidation of the successes so far recorded and to properly give attention to the efforts to curb sporadic attack which is taking its toll. That report by Collins Atohengbe from Lagos. Malawi's immediate past president, Joyce Banda, has been issued an arrest warrant of allegations surrounding the corruption scandal known as Cashgate. Banda was president between 2012 and 2014 and left in September 2014. Malawi police said Banda is suspected of abusing her office in the Cashgate incident, which has since seen many arrested and jailed. Now on the line we are joined by our correspondent, George Mango, who is in Malawi. Good evening, George. Can you tell us on what grounds is the warrant of arrest issued? Uh, a very good moment, very good evening to you too. The uh, arrest warrant has been uh, granted uh, on uh, the basis that uh, it's alleged that uh, Joyce Banda, the former president, was engaged in some corrupt uh, activities and then money laundering deals dating back to 2013 when uh, she was in the high office. So definitely the Malay police have issued this warrant of arrest uh, calling on the Interpol member countries to arrest wherever she is, but currently we don't even know where she is. And why would Malawi police want to use Interpol in this case? Uh, what is uh, said is the fact that uh, as the police, they are aware that Suspanda uh, will not be coming to Malawi anytime soon, and uh, the fact that uh, she has been abroad for a long time, uh, it means that uh, definitely the cash gate matters, the public plunder of financial resources at Capitol Hill definitely are having a major damage on uh, Malawi and people would like to uh, have her, you know, uh, asked or, you know, questioned to say what does she know about the cash gate cases, that's corruption and then abuse of office plus money laundering. So that is why they have used this uh, Interpol uh, member, country, member countries to say wherever she needs she has to be arrested because uh, they're claiming that it's an issue of public interest here in Malawi. And can you tell us what has been the reaction from the People's Party? There hasn't been any official comment from uh, the uh, former People's Party, which is, uh, of course, the House. But uh, what uh, we, we, we think now, you know, and what we've known is that uh, they have said that uh, these are just uh, political uh, um, uh, issues. And they want to silence her because apparently uh, 2019 falls uh, just around the corner. Okay. And and what is the feeling of political and human rights activists on on the matter? In fact, what they have said is that uh, definitely looking at the uh, landscape politically in Malawi, this kind of event where maybe the former uh, head of state 
or maybe some political figures have been arrested. They are not very strange. But what is questionable, according to them, is the fact that uh, why has it taken four years for the police to establish that Jess uh, Panda was indeed engaged in all these activities? Perhaps uh, to say that other people have been arrested. But what you know, commentators are also saying the fact that it's better for Jess Panda to come and then answer plead duty or not to all these charges because. Uh, all fingers based on those cash get suspects and then uh, convicts appointing at her just like one or so to the table who indicated that Joyce Panda might have known something. And looking at all of these uh, developments, what would you say is the future of Joyce Panda's political career then? This definitely puts her political career in jeopardy. Why? Because uh, it means even if she comes, she will just be spending more time in. Uh, courts, you know, trying to answer uh, and then save her face, but at the same time, it's going to be too late for her. And even the, 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 her part is, you know, torn apart because people are, you know, defecting to different political parties, including the ruling DPP and other parties like maybe my Congress party. So uh, her party has to some extent lost direction uh, in the view of her being outside and you know there is like you know uh, some senior figures are not fighting for positions so it's, it's something that shows that maybe her political future will have to be put in order and the quicker the better hence commentators are saying it's time for her to come back home and start facing all these changes uh, if not if she's clean then she'll be able to stand and before I let you go, uh, George, do you have any idea where pres- uh, former President Joyce Banda is residing at the moment? What uh, has been said and what has been said currently, uh, say, uh, locally, is the fact that maybe she might be in South Africa currently, but we are not very sure as to where she is because, you know, with this kind of a development, they are putting some lapses on that. And uh, basically, she was also in the United States of America this other time. So it's, it's, it's currently suspected that she might be in South Africa. All right. Thank you so much, George. That was our correspondent, George Mango, on the line from Plantaya in Malawi. And up next is our news headlines with Jolani Tulu. Thank you, Amanda. Making headlines, Senegal President Macky Sall's ruling coalition is set to retain a commanding majority in parliament after a weekend election. Members of Kenya civil society have accused state agencies in the country of masterminding the murder of a senior electoral commission official whose remains were found in a mortuary on Monday, three days after his disappearance. And finally, South Sudan activists are pushing for the inclusion of rebel leader Rick Machar in the official process of reviving the peace agreement he signed with President in Salvakir more than two years ago. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world.
Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 17.31 Central African Time. You're listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa and we're bringing you news from an African perspective. Kenya goes to the polls next Tuesday to elect new leaders. One of the key issues affecting Kenyans is the state of health care. The public health sector has been hit by two long strikes by doctors and nurses as well as allegations of corruption. The BBC's Africa's health correspondent Ensoy looks at the performance of the current leadership and what impact it could have on the elections. Kenya's nurses making their voice heard on the streets of Nairobi. They've boycotted work for weeks, demanding for better terms. Political campaigns are on, but no one is talking about them. Hello? All the nurses yes. to stay put until Jesus Christ comes back. Yeah. I'm Boris Ojambo Ketu, the acting general secretary of the Kenya National Union of Nurses. The nurses give 90% of the healthcare services in public health facilities, and when they are out on strike, it means the services are totally grounded, and the, the Kenyan citizens are not enjoying their rights of quality healthcare services. The president, the deputy president, the governors, the opposition leaders have failed the Kenyan citizens because they have failed even to take one day off out of their campaigns, listen to the nurses and get a solution for the nurses. It is a very big disappointment. I'm walking down a dirt path in Kibera, one of Nairobi's slums. On my left, I can see a woman deep-frying fish for sale. On the right, there are three girls queuing to collect water from the community watering point. In front of me is the village public toilet. The majority of people who go to public hospitals are low-income earners. They live in areas like this. I'm going to meet a 16-year-old girl I will call Janet who, like many girls here, has dropped out of school after she became pregnant. I can see on your arm you have an IV syringe. Why are you walking around with it? They said that I have ulcers. It has eaten all of my stomach and my sugar. Blood sugar. Yeah, it's high. And I have told this on my hand. She was taken ill last week and rushed to a public hospital. But the nurse's strike forced her to seek treatment in a privately owned health facility. But she fears she might not complete her medication. The hospital has asked her not to return until she clears an outstanding bill. Her mother is worried and helpless. Her father is a casual laborer and I make samosas for sale by the road. On a good day, I make two dollars and that's what I use to feed our four children. The treatment is very expensive. The story is repeated in many homes due to two prolonged strikes, first by doctors, 
than by nurses. Health is a function shared between the national government and a new second tier of leadership spread across 47 counties. Dr. Chitai Murabula is a former union leader. Although devolution was a good idea, but because of the challenges encountered during the implementation, the quality of service provision still remained very poor. He reckons that the devolution of health services hasn't really worked. That transition was uh, difficult because the counties did not have the capacity to handle the health services in terms of human resource, in terms of the running of hospitals, which then resulted into discontent. Six, one, two, two, but not all is lost. The number of women giving birth in hospitals has doubled since the government abolished delivery charges. More than half the Kenyan population now has medical insurance and state-of-the-art diagnostic equipment is available in hospitals across the country. But without these nurses at work in hospital, those gains mean nothing. The poor will continue to suffer. Both the ruling coalition and the Council of Governors, led by an opposition politician, have failed to resolve the issues and end the strikes quickly. It's a big issue that politicians have conveniently ignored as they seek votes, a conspiracy of silence. That's BBC Africa's health correspondent Ensoi reporting from Nairobi. Following the outbreak of the highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N8 virus in Southern Africa, in Zimbabwe and South Africa, the Southern African Development Community Secretariat with FAO have organized a regional technical meeting to assess the preparedness, response, capacities and actions of member states to the recent outbreak of HPAI in the sub-region. The meeting will be taking place beginning tomorrow at the Southern Sun Hotel or Tambo Airport in Johannesburg. Dr. Patrick Otto, sub-regional livestock officer for the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, explains. The meeting itself focuses on preparedness and response to the outbreak of highly pathogenic avian influenza, which is, has appeared in Southern Africa for the first time ever. And it's really intended you know, to provide a platform for countries to share information you know, experiences and best practices in responding to the outbreak. Well, Doctor, you said this is the first time that uh, the region has experienced this highly pathogenic avian influenza. So how prepared was the area of Southern Africa for this uh, avian influenza? You will recall that this is uh, avian influenza is not new. Dating back from 2005, we had another global threat of a different strain of avian influenza. And so the region at that time had already put in place response plans, both as a region and each country was also required to develop their own contingency plan in case the disease gets into Southern Africa. Now what we have is the different strain of the virus. So in answer to your question, I would say, whereas we have these response plans which were developed around about 2006, there is now need to review this plan to address the particular characteristics of this new strain of the virus. Now, Doctor, how many strains of this avian influenza do we know of in the region of Southern Africa, although this is the first time that the region has experienced it, except uh, in other areas of the globe? 
there is only one strain so far in Southern Africa which we are dealing with, and that is the strain referred to as the H5N8. Is it an airborne virus or is it uh, carried uh, by certain... It is a virus which is principally transmitted by wild birds and the infection that we have in Southern Africa, there is evidence to suggest that they have been introduced by wild birds that are, you know, regularly on a seasonal basis visit in the Southern Hemisphere and they fly down south on a seasonal basis from Europe where this disease has been experienced in the past. That is the first source of, the primary source of disease. But within the, once it establishes itself, it can also spread by direct contact through also through the air and also through contamination of equipment within farms itself. Now again, Doctor, how would you say is the harmonization and the standardization of the laboratory testing protocols and capacities of member states in the region of Southern Africa to combat this uh, avian influenza? This will be the subject of one of our discussions here. There is a need to harmonize the laboratory tests to ensure that we are able to correct accurate information which can be shared and also compared between countries. And uh, talking about the coordination of this regional strengthening of the subcommittees, uh, technical working groups, as well as networks, how would that be established uh, as from now towards the future if there's this outbreak of uh, avian influenza? At the regional level, this will need to be coordinated through the SADAC structures. We have the regional laboratory network. We have the regional networks for surveillance of the disease in the region itself. These provide the main platform for collection and sharing of information. But the coordination of the regional response will also go through the SADAC technical committee for livestock which brings together all the national authorities which are responsible at the national level for responding to the outbreak. Now, Doctor, you mentioned that uh, this avian influenza is transmitted by some of these wild birds who are migrating from one area of the globe to another. But now, do we specifically know which birds in particular are the ones that are carrying this avian influenza? There are various species of wild birds, quite a large number of species of wild birds, and it depends very much on the particular migratory route and also, you know, the particular country within which many of these birds are traveling. There are more than 15 or 20 species that could potentially transmit the disease, but other influence affects most species of birds, so all birds could potentially transmit them. Is there any means that is going to be put in place in order to be able to put in an antidote in those areas where the passages of some of these wild birds use in order to be able to reach their final destinations? The key is prevention. It is about having strong biosecurity measures to protect the poultry from contact with the potentially infected wild birds or droppings from these wild birds. But it is also about having surveillance in all the countries to monitor 
the health of both domestic and wild birds. In many countries where these outbreaks have taken place, sometimes the first sign is actually sickness or death of wild birds. So there's a need to also engage with various agencies, such as the wildlife services, to monitor you know, any unexplained death in wild birds, which could give an indication of the presence of the virus. That was Dr. Patrick Otto, sub-regional officer for the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Economics News is next with Wisani Matibula. Thanks, Amanda. Good evening. Shares in Nigeria's Dangote Cement rose 7.3% on Tuesday after the company increased the free float on its stock with a $236 million US dollar stake sale to foreign investors. Dangote, majority owned by Africa's richest man, Aliko Dangote, sold a total of 416 million shares in Dangote Cement to foreign investors at half a dollar each. The gains in Dangote Cement, which accounts for a third of Nigeria's total market capitalization, helped end a losing streak for the Main share index, which was up 2.4%. And South African Reserve Bank Governor Leseche Khanyakho has warned of dire consequences due to policy uncertainty. He says central bank central bankers of major trading partners are also concerned about political uncertainty in the country and raised these issues during their meetings. He says this means that their private investors are worried about the situation in the country. The bank projects a GDP growth of 1.5% by 2019 if things don't change. Briefing Parliament Standing Committee on Finance, Khanyaho explains. My blood boils too when I read about these allegations of money being taken out. I think that's true for all of us. Uh, It abhors us that there is corruption in South Africa, that people use the financial system to take money out of the country. Mm. We do a huge amount to try and curb that, but we are often one step behind the tail. We are often not able to sufficiently curb illicit financial flows. Egypt's rising interest rates and soaring inflation have hit second-quarter profits at some of the country's food and drinks companies, providing evidence that some consumers' purchasing power is being squeezed. Second-quarter net uh, profits at Edita Food Industries, one of Egypt's largest snack food producers, fell 88% to U.S. dollars Juyahana Food Industries, which is Egypt's biggest producer of packaged juice and dairy products, has reported an 8.6% drop in the second quarter net profits, despite an 18.7% rise in sales. And the serious fraud overs in Britain has opened a formal investigation into allegations that British-American tobacco, BAT, paid bribes in East Africa, the BBC's Theo Leggett reports. Allegations that British-American tobacco had been involved in paying bribes to politicians and civil servants in several East African countries were initially made in a BBC Panorama documentary broadcast in 2015. The company said at the time it did not and would not tolerate corruption. It has since been investigating allegations of wrongdoing using external legal advisers and cooperating with the Serious Fraud Office. It says it will also cooperate with the formal investigation that's now been launched. 
British energy company BP's second quarter profit dipped uh, but uh, beat profits after an exploration write-off in Angola, while a 10% rise in oil and gas production from a slew of new projects gave shares a strong boost. BP also increased cash flow from operations in a further sign that efforts by top oil companies to cut costs uh, since uh, the 2014 price slump are paying off as it expects oil prices to hold at around 50 US dollars per barrel into next year. Despite negative news, BP shares were up 3.4%, outperforming the broader sector index. Financial indicators now, the US dollar is at 13.10, uh, South African rands at uh, 10.06, Botswana Pula, and 8.84, Zambian Kwacha, also at 0.76 to the British pound and 0.84 against the euro. Commodities, uh, gold $1,268, platinum $936 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is now at $52.31 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Sunny. Up next is our sports news with Neto Chemane. Good evening, sport fans. With the latest to Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with soccer news, the Premier Soccer League has appointed a senior counsel to investigate the loss of life that occurred at the FNB Stadium during the Kalim Black Label Champions Cup. The stampede happened minutes before Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs kick off, and according to reports, many people were unaware of what happened as the match went underway. Advocate Vincent Malika has been named to head an investigation into the events which led to two supporters losing their lives, with others injured due to a stampede before kick-off during the Soweto derby. Manchester United have sent Serbia international Nemanja Matic from Premier League champions Chelsea on a three-year contract with an option to extend for a further year. Mourinho signed Matic when he was in charge of Chelsea in 2014. Matic, who originally joined Chelsea in 2009 before moving to Benfica in 2011, became an influential part of Chelsea's title-winning side under Mourinho in 2014-2015 season. In an interview with the channel MUTV, Matic said he feels great about joining the Europa League champions and is looking forward to working with the team. I feel great. Uh, Manchester is uh, one of the biggest clubs in the world and, uh, and I'm very happy because I, I'm now part of, the, of this great club, part of this great group. And I'm looking forward to start to train with the team and to start to play the games. On to athletics news. IAAF President Sebastian Coe says Usain Bolt is the greatest sprinter of all time and described the Jamaican as a genius. Coe, who was speaking at the end of an IAAF council meeting, compared Bolt to Muhammad Ali, adding that eight-time Olympic champion would be missed when he retires after the IAAF World Championships in London. Usain Bolt is a genius. I can't think, of, other than Muhammad Ali in my sporting lifetime, I can't think of anybody that has so had an impact inside or beyond their sport. Uh, and when you're sitting there, you know, you, you can have the, you know, the Friday night in the pub conversations about who's the best footballer and who's the best tennis player, and we can have arguments about Pele and Maradona or Federer or, you know, going back a few generations, Rob Laver. But 
there's no argument about this guy in sprinting. He is the best sprinter of all time. But actually, what we're going to miss is not the possible improbability within the foreseeable future of somebody winning three Olympic Games back-to-back or breaking a clutch of world records. It's the personality. And we do want athletes with personalities. Cole went on to say he hopes the bolt will help the governing body in some shape or form in the future to help nurture the sport and keep it relevant to young people. The 30-year-old Bolt will compete in the 100 meters and 4 times 100 meter relay at the World Championships as the Jamaican prepares to bid farewell to the sport he has dominated for the best part of the last decade. The World Championships begin on Friday and run for 10 days until August the 13th. My instinct is he'll deal with it pretty well. Um, but look, it's, it, it, it is a, you know, every athlete goes through those phases. You, you know, if, if ever I'm in any doubt at all about the moment I just chose to retire and subsequently over the following 10 or 15 years I used to sit in a quiet room and open a training diary from uh, random from any day o- over a decade. And that's why I knew I wasn't still doing what I was, was trying to do back then. So yes, he will miss the rhythm and, uh, and the focus of the day, not straight away, none of us do. But we have started a sensible discussion with him. I, it's a conversation I had three years ago now. I had a similar conversation actually with the Prime Minister of Jamaica when I was over there for his last race on Jamaican soil. And, and we both have the same challenge in a way. What is it that we can do to maintain his engagement in the sport. He's going to be incredibly busy. He's going to have 101 things and pressures on his time. I've said, look, if we can claim a little bit of that time, we would love to to work with you. And finally, in cricket news, Proteus captain Faf Duplessis has admitted that the decision to select Vernon Philander for a third test at the Oval was a gamble which backfired. He was already unwell with a maestro viral infection 24 hours before the match started and continued to deteriorate once the game started at which South Africa went on to lose by 239 runs. Duplessis has defended the selection of opener Heino Kuhn, who has yet to reach 50 innings so far. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for sport, news and programming from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-four Central African time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories right here on Africa Digest. Senegal's ruling party claims a landslide victory in the West African nation's legislative elections, and DRC president has less than five months to save his seventeen-year regime from what analysts call a disastrous ending. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Or you can also tweet us. Our Twitter handle is at channelafrica1. And taking us to the top of the hour is Ngowami by Lloyd Kahile, featuring a Beyond vocal. Beyond vocal.